Good morning, First Church. I'm Mike Jennings, and I'm one of your elders here, and uh, it's great that you're with us this morning, and I got to tell you, I'm excited to be here. Your elders have been working on this message together, and uh, I am excited to be the spokesperson here this morning for it. So as you can see from the walk-up message here, the, uh, for the next five weeks, we're going to be looking here at one of the shortest books of the Bible, which is Titus. So ultimately, why are we looking at Titus now? Well, after a period of 30 years of steady leadership here at this church and not really having to think a whole lot about who we are as a church, um, our current period of transition seemed to be the appropriate time for us to really take a look at the foundations of our church to make sure it's strong before we build upon it any further. And should we discover any weaknesses here, this gives us the opportunity to repair any cracks or deterioration. Make sense? Yeah. So, so we're going to be using a construction and building um, metaphor here to tell this story. But in truth, we're actually talking about this body of believers and the things it is that we do individually and together. So it's these foundations it is that we're going to be inspecting. Now, after all, uh, if we look back last week to what it is that Bob Hocutt taught us from Paul's prophecy in 2 Timothy 4.3, said that for the time will come when people meaning the church, will not put up with sound doctrine. Instead, to suit their own desires, they will gather around them a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. So, let's get to work, all right? So, just like any architect or contractor, we are going to need some design plans in hand before we can do a proper inspection of our structure and make any repairs. So the good news is, is that the Bible offers several different designs that we can use to guide our inspections as it is that we move along. But if the goal is to start first with inspecting the strength of our foundation so that we can build upon it in the future and work our way up, where would be the best place in the Bible to look? Well, you probably already guessed Titus because this is focus on first century church planning. All right, so let's think about this for a moment. These people literally started with nothing, okay? The gospel had been preached to a community that had never heard the message, never heard the message of salvation. There was no faith infrastructure. And if you remember, it actually takes until 535 for us to get a Bible that you can read in a native language, okay? Many people have responded to this gospel message, and those who have have now started to gather, okay? trying to figure out what's next. And now Paul has to get these people on the right track and set the highest priorities of the first things first, okay? So this sure looks like a good place for us to find the designs on how to set a strong foundation for the church, and this is where it is that we turn to Paul's letter to Titus. So let's set the stage here a little bit further, okay? At the time it is that Paul's writing this, it's about 64 A.D., About 30 years after Jesus' ascension to heaven, Paul's preached the gospel to Crete, and the church is growing throughout Greek's largest island. They want to build on the rock of their salvation, which is Jesus, okay? Well, here's the problem. It's a gaggle at this point, and there's risk that the good work that had been done there is about to be undone. Everybody seems to have an opinion on what it is that they should do, and I'm sure it wasn't hard to find people saying how messed up things are and that they should be doing something. Okay. In the meantime, Paul just talks about Jewish converts and other opportunists, 
adding things to the trustworthy message based on their previously held beliefs, and in many cases, even trying to take advantage of some of the new converts for their own personal gains. Beyond that, there's minutia going on and gossip starting to fragment the church. It's getting out of control. It's time to bring that chaos to order. What's more, this is Crete. And though that doesn't mean much to us today, in writing to Titus, Paul quotes the 7th century BC Greek poet, philosopher, and prophet Epimenides of Gnosis in saying that Cretans are always liars, evil brutes, and lazy gluttons, giving us pretty good insight that the ancient world had long recognized that Crete was home to a particularly difficult people. Paul wanted to be clear that this was a tough crowd, okay? So locking down the basics would definitely be a top priority. So Paul sends Titus a letter and opens it, instructing him to complete what it is that he referred to as the unfinished work for the purposes of furthering the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth that leads to godliness. So, from this letter, our objectives today is to get clarity on three important topics. Number one, what Paul's priorities tell us are the foundational building blocks for establishing a church. Two, why those particular building blocks are important to laying a strong foundation. And three, what are the first things it is that the church has to do to move forward on the right track? In other words, what are our baby steps? So, Let's go to the scripture and pick up this story where Paul gets to the meat of what it is that he has to say. So if you'll open your Bibles to Titus chapter 1, verse 5, or certainly you can follow along with me here on the screen. The reason I left you in Crete was that you might put in order what was left unfinished and appoint elders in every town, as I directed you. An elder must be blameless, faithful to his wife, a man whose children believe and are not open to the charge of being wild and disobedient. Since an overseer manages God's household, he must be blameless, not overbearing, not quick-tempered, not given to drunkenness, not violent, not pursuing dishonest gain. Rather, he must be hospitable, one who loves what is good, one who is self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firmly to the trustworthy message as it has been taught, so that he can encourage others by sound doctrine and refute those who oppose it. For there are many rebellious people, full of meaningless talk and deception, especially those of the circumcision group. They must be silenced, because they are disrupting whole households by teaching things they ought not teach, and that for the sake of dishonest gain. One of Crete's own prophets has said it. Cretans are always liars, evil brutes, and lazy gluttons. This saying is true. Therefore, rebuke them sharply so that they will be sound in the faith and pay no attention to Jewish myths or to the merely human commands of those who reject the truth. To the pure, all things are pure. But to those who are corrupted and do not believe, nothing is pure. In fact, both their minds and their consciousness are corrupted. They claim to know God, but by their actions, they deny him. They are detestable, disobedient, and unfit for doing anything good. Yikes. All right. All right. So this is a lot to unpack. So let's start at the beginning. So by Paul's direction, Titus's first order of business to establish the church was to appoint the elders. Well, why is that? Well, 
Paul indicates that the elder has a particular responsibility to make sure that the foundation of the church remains strong. In verse 9, he says, an elder must encourage others by sound doctrine and refute those who oppose it. So in other words, it's a fundamental building block of a church to ensure that a group of men are appointed to be responsible for ensuring that a church's doctrine remains strong. Then, that they have to understand that doctrine well enough to defend it against anybody who tries to counter it. That seems like a really big deal to me. And quite frankly, when I read it standing before you here as one of your elders, it's a little intimidating, actually. But the key to this passage is that Titus is not being told to appoint an elder, but elders, the plural. It's more than one. And this is such an interesting point. Consider the alternative here for a moment. What would happen if the doctrine of a church was maintained by just one person? I think we've seen some pretty bad examples through history of how that goes. So how could you be certain that the person you were following got it right? Well, to be confident, that person would have to be God himself, wouldn't he? In fact, that's precisely why it is that we follow Jesus, because he provided the evidence that he and God are one. But short of that, we understand that people are flawed and corruptible. But when a number of people hear the same message, they can keep each other straight. This is actually the essence of how the oral history of the church was used to maintain the scriptures over the centuries. So consider this. Jesus taught 12 disciples for a period of about three years. None of them could have remembered perfectly everything it is that Jesus said. They all understood the themes, but as a group, they were able to get together and get clarity on exactly what it is that Jesus had said to make sure that his words were documented properly and shared with the world. The reliability of oral history and a study of its mechanisms is really not something that we're going to talk about today, but it's the very reason that we can be confident in the accuracy of the Bible. And Paul understood that this was the very framework that was needed to keep the doctrine sound. So, Paul was sending Titus to form a group of men who would work together to ensure that the church maintained the doctrine that literally has eternal life and death consequences. And that means Titus had better be really careful who he puts on that committee. And that's why Paul articulated a very specific set of criteria for Titus to make his selections. Now, beyond what it is that these people knew, Titus had to make certain to put people in place whose credibility, motives, temperament, and lifestyle were all beyond question. If not, their authority in these matters not only could be challenged, but would be challenged. Looking at the scripture, these men would be tasked with not only maintaining the doctrine of the church, but also ridding the church of the unsound doctrine and having to take it head on against people who stood a lot to lose who were manipulating that. That means the elders had to have more credibility with the church than those who were challenging them to keep other people from being led astray. Of course, the purpose for rebuking the behaviors or refuting the unsound doctrine was not just to preserve the church, but also to help the offending person build a sound faith, at least to the point it is that the person was willing to accept. That is a function of love, which in our construction illustration is the mortar that is going to hold all of these building blocks together. So simply put, we can see that the elders are put in place to set 
and maintain the direction of the church and maintain order, both of themselves and of the church as a whole. Now, you see, these standards are not just part of the selection process, but part of a lifelong accountability to a standard that comes with the role. Those standards, responsibilities, and accountabilities exist to this day, and I can tell you that they are taken very seriously in this church. Not just accepted, but pursued from a heart's desire to be shaped into the likeness of of Christ for the sake of the church and the trustworthy message that comes out from us. So later, when we look into chapter 2, you're going to see that Paul discusses how Titus and the elders were to teach other members of the church to create an environment that both encourages respect for authority and teaches the church how to develop people worthy of respect so that order and unity would flourish. Well, how does that happen? Well, as we said, the text directs the elders to encourage and teach it. But what's the, the baby step, the most basic thing that gets the church moving in the right direction after believing the message and creating order around sound doctrine? Well, before Paul ever actually declares it to Titus, he actually alludes to it as part of the qualifications for the elder. And you'll see in verse 8, he says that the man who would be an elder loves what is good. This is one of the key criteria. And interestingly, among the affirmative criteria, which would basically be the, if we were to kind of put this as a do and don't list or a yes and no list, this is the yes list of criteria compared to the no list. This is the only item on the yes list that is actually an action verb. All of the other characteristics are passive. They describe states of being, like being hospitable, self-controlled, holy, upright, disciplined. But when it comes to this particular qualification, Paul says this has to be one who loves what is good, indicating this is action-oriented, something a person has to do. And because we're talking about love, it's also a matter of the heart, which is where we find motivations for why people do what it is that they do. So if you look at all of Jesus' encounters with people, One of the things it is that you're going to find that's abundantly clear is that Jesus judged the heart of a person above everything else. It's the heart that provides the frame of reference for a person's actions, words, or motivations on any kind of matter. And this was what was of primary interest to Jesus in determining what it is that he would say to someone. So if a person loves what is good, what can we infer from this? Well, In Mark 10, verse 18, a man addresses Jesus as good teacher. And Jesus replies by stating, no one is good but God alone. So if we connect the dots here and follow what it is that we know about love on ourselves, we can infer that a person who loves what is good not only ponders the things of God, but desires them deeply and intensely, takes pleasure in them, pursues them, and seeks to bond with them, and the source of all of these good things, which is God. Isn't this what it is that we know about ourselves whenever it is that we fall in love with someone, right? So what with the church then? Well, let's go back to the text. In Titus 3.14, as Paul is wrapping up his letter, he lays out the key first step or challenge in the church's journey under its newly appointed leaders. He sets up our last building block. Our people must learn to devote themselves to doing what is good. And there we have it again. The dictionary defines the word devote as a verb, a meaning to commit all or a large 
portion of a person's resources to something specific. And Paul's language indicates that doing good is not something that comes naturally to people. You may recall something about a flood and an ark. When it comes to learning, though, learning requires both willingness and, in, and intention. So if we're to devote ourselves properly, Paul is saying that the most important foundational step in leading a group of believers is helping them learn how to spend more time thinking about things important to and of God. So this focus on doing good starts with our thoughts, and our thoughts lead us to start doing things. And when we think about something and we start doing it repeatedly, this starts to become the dominant element of our thoughts. And then we begin to start loving what it is that we're doing as we get more and more into it. So ultimately, this becomes a self-reinforcing process. So I take this back to a, to a personal story of mine. And, and one of my first memories of Pastor John came shortly after we moved back home here from Virginia. It's probably about 20 years ago. And uh, uh, it was the first time he had come to visit our home. But before we had come back, even though my wife and I were married in this church and, and my family had started attending here in 1987, we were only really around for the holidays or when we came to, to visit. So when we came back to the area, we didn't want to jump right into First Church. We said, okay, let's, let's go around. So we went to about 12 other different churches as, as it was that we came back. But ultimately, we felt First Church was, was home. So as Michelle and I sat around our kitchen table with our kids playing in the, in the room, nearby, I started to tell John about our path back to First Church and the, the dozen or so churches in the area that we had visited when we came back, and how it is that I had evaluated them. Churches who still had pews and used hymnals, they were out. They were out of touch. Weak children's program, my kids deserve better. I talked about all kinds of things it is that I wanted in judging the churches in the area before we came back to First Church. And all the while, Pastor John never said a word. He just sat quietly and listened patiently as I carried on and on, making my case for how I had evaluated that First Church was the best church in town because I knew so much at 35 years old. And when I was all done and feeling very proud of myself for conducting this superb analysis of the shortcomings of every other church in the area and complimenting John so highly for his successes here, he simply told me, that the key to finding a great church was getting involved in the church. And he simply encouraged me to find a place to serve and focus on that. Well, at first, his answer startled me. And then, to be honest, I was a little more than just ashamed of what it is that I'd said. I thought I was so smart. I thought I had it all figured out. But in the end, I knew nothing. Nothing. I wish I could say that was it, and I was on my way to the Holy Highlands from there, but it would take a few more years and a couple more major screw-ups before God, God got me over myself. But what John did in that moment was to encourage me to devote myself to doing what was good and not judging others on what I thought was good, to find out what is true and right by God's standards and not by what was tingling my ears to my standards. And that has made the greatest difference in my life personally. So here in Titus, we have the most basic design for laying the foundation of the church and the order of its laying. In Nehemiah chapter 3, we see the chronicles of the Israelites rebuilding the city of Jerusalem. And in this story, each person's home was actually part of the wall 
that protected the city of Jerusalem. And each person was responsible for building the portion of their wall to the design standard that had to be inspected before further building could be done. Today, we're not building buildings or walls. We're building people, individually and as a group. So herein lies our takeaway for today, to inspect our own foundations and make the repairs necessary to hold the weight of our purpose as it is that we build. But as we're doing that, let's keep three things in mind as we set out to discover, and we'll hit them in reverse order as we look and apply them to our own lives. Number one, let's learn to focus on doing good so that we come to truly love the good and love each other well. How will we know when we actually love good? Well, it's when we no longer dwell on the bad or the negative. Remember, in this very letter, Paul says, for the pure, all things are pure. And what this means is, is that the person with the pure heart believes that things that come from a pure heart are pure, just as Jesus did. Pure hearts love. Number two, let's be prepared to learn and be open to guidance and correction. The church can only strengthen itself when we are humble enough to learn, which can be kind of hard for grown-ups. But by loving what is good, we come to desire correction for the sake of our love of good and yearning to align with it. And this is really the true heart of our worship. And three, and finally, let's understand that the church's leaders commit to a serious responsibility to maintain the standards in, in themselves and to the church, to encourage each other to be good examples and submissive to authorities, and to wade into difficult situations with a heart full of love for the individual, but also with the resolve to protect the body as a whole. All of this is to build unity and a people who cannot be spoken against so that we can be a light into this dark world. For this is the work that our Lord and Savior has set before us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for sending Jesus to be the rock on which we can build our lives in this church. And we thank you for giving us designs that we can use to help us inspect and repair our foundations in preparation for all that you have in store for us in this next chapter of our lives together. Help us learn to devote ourselves to doing good so we may show the world that we are followers of you by the way we love each other. Keep our hearts open to you and draw us closer. Stir in us, in a, stir in us a desire to please you in all that we do. May the words of our mouths and the meditations of our hearts be pleasing in your sight as we learn to love you more and more every day. In Jesus' name.